Welcome to The Rest is Education, a podcast by teachers for teachers. I'm Ross Borthwick. And I'm David Marshall, and we're here with Thomas Primrose from Harewood School in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. We're really delighted, Thomas, to have you with us, and we just want to give you a huge warm welcome to The Rest is Education. Yeah, so it's it's not the first time we've we've met, and uh, personally, I've been really looking forward to this one, and I'm so thrilled that we're starting the uh, the term with with this interview. Thomas, welcome. Great, hi hi everyone, and and thanks David and Ross for having me on. Um, a shame that we couldn't catch up with Aaron today, but I look forward to having him back on the podcast in the future. Um, yeah, it's a real honour to be to be invited to um, catch up with you guys today. I, I really loved our time working together in Notting Hill and I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing where we, where we can take this conversation. Fantastic. Yeah, we're, um, we're stoked to have you on and we are sorry to have not have Aaron here. He's, uh, he's been a bit unwell lately. He's had a bit of bad flu. Um, so he'll be back hopefully in the next episode, but in the meantime, Thomas, do you want to tell us a little bit about your setting? Um, uh, and you know, what have you been doing for the last sort of two years since we worked together? Great. So I work at Heroworth School. It's a an independent school in Hawkes Bay, so um, a provincial a provincial uh, town. And we are excitingly going co-ed uh, this coming year. So we have been all boys for almost a hundred years, and we we have our first intake of girls. So. Uh, at the moment, we currently sit at 45 girls across all age groups. Um, we are a traditional prep school in that we have uh, sport as a big focus, uh, obviously performing arts, uh, academics as well, and we have a boarding um, element as well. So we have roughly 50 boarders who live on site um, at, at the school. As David mentioned, so we, we work together in, in London. Um, I left the UK in October 2020, so due to sort of the COVID pandemic, thoroughly enjoyed my time in the UK. And coming home, I was looking for any school <laughs> that would take me. Um, but uh, but looking around around Hawke's Bay, looking around uh, Tauranga, which is uh, on the East Coast, uh, closer to Auckland, and then also looking in Wellington, uh, which is the capital city, which is where I worked for five years previously. was really grateful to get a, a, a job interview at, at Hereworth, and I felt like it it fitted with what I was familiar with in terms of working in, in London uh, in a prep school setting. Um, it has been quite different in that we uh, we do a lot more in terms of sport uh, than than I was used to in London, so a different commitment in that sense. Um, I was appointed to be the deputy head in charge of teaching and learning and was really excited to, to be part of senior management um, and grow myself in that in that setting, um, we have one other deputy who's in charge of pastoral care um, and well-being, and so we work quite closely together with the headmaster to sort of set our strategic goals for for academic and then also for for well-being as well. It's probably worth saying, Thomas, that we we actually all worked on the Thinking School Drive team uh, when we were together in London, and so that that move that you've just made. You know, it, it's obviously a lo- logical route for you. Have you have you seen much thinking school stuff down down in New Zealand? Is that are there are there thinking schools? Is that something that's happening? No, there's not, and I, and I have done a little bit of research around that. But I was really excited to sort of share my my experience at at Hereworth, um in terms of the thinking school 
I, I find that it really helps um, all learners, particularly those who, who struggle academically, and it gives them an opportunity to share their thinking and not be graded, I guess is the is the way that I would put it, not be marked or judged. Um, so yeah, a fantastic initiative and, and a great way to incorporate that in, into the school. But you've, um, you've got your own you know, pedagogy you've been developing, I think, and, and we've heard a chat a little bit about that before. I think you've mentioned you've been doing some Harvard Project Zero work, and then you've been doing quite a lot of developing literacy work with, uh, I think, is it either a New Zealand or an Australian literacy program? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about either or both of those. Sure. So as you mentioned, we're, we're doing some work with, or we have done some work over the last two years with Project Zero, which is a Harvard uh, research project, which focuses on thinking routines and inculcating the the, th- the thinking and uh, the vision of of students and nurturing sort of their potential thinking about ethics looking at intelligence and creativity so we've been working with mark church on that where we did it was probably a half termly uh, pd session um some breakout groups and he would share some routines with us we would share what we've been doing in the class and, and look to refine what we've been doing. I think the biggest thing that we found was teachers felt that this particular project only aligned with certain subjects. And so it was about sort of breaking down those barriers and showing that it can work in maths and it can work in science and it can work in technology rather than just English and, say, social sciences. So that was a big thing for us. As you mentioned, we've also been doing some work around structured literacy and and looking at reading, writing and spelling and how they link and how they join together. So we've been working with Liz Kane Literacy on that and looking at the code, um, which is spelling and reading. And that's been sort of a game changer for us in that we find that we have a lot of students who struggle um, with literacy. And so to be able to give them the tools to, you know, unlock the, the literacy learning has been has been sort of, yeah, revolutionary really. When you say um, you know struggle with literacy in in general, I think I think you know lots of people I'm I'm speaking with at the moment are, are finding that in in their settings that there's almost a maybe a lack of that base sort of literacy going on at at, at home, and um, pupils. I mean, I've I've heard of pupils going into the pre prep or you know uh, low years in primary school, literally trying to swipe a book with their finger. Um, yeah. And and I, you know, obviously Kindles, I guess, are used as well. But but that whole lack of familiarity with with holding an actual book, and I was wondering, is that some? I know you've just been back in New Zealand for a couple of years, but is that something that is is being talked about in New Zealand? Or um, yeah, I'm just just interested to see really whether it's it's a universal shift. Yeah, I, I find that there's not as many children um, at the moment who are reading for pleasure. It's more about okay, you know, you have to read to get the mileage up. And so just giving them those opportunities to, to you know, learn about different authors and different, you know, theories and, and just showing them how fun literacy can be. But then also the fact that they need the skills to be able to unpack what they read. And so sometimes it, it can be, you know, starting back at, at the beginning and and also for those children who are struggling you just got to boost their confidence and for them to not feel like they are too far behind and showing that they can, they just have to put in the, you know, the work as well. Um, do, you, do you mind if I ask, have you got a school librarian at Harrowworth? We do. Yes, we do. 
Um, we're very fortunate to have a school librarian and, and a fantastic well-resourced library. I'm not too sure how you find it in your schools, but I still find that some of our students go straight to the Guinness Book of Records or those easy books um, rather than you know getting stuck into Roald Dahl or Harry Potter or you know, something that's a bit more meaty. I was reading uh, Daniel Willingham over the uh, over the Christmas holiday. Why don't why do people hate school? Or why don't people like school? Sorry, and um, he he makes the argument that actually the, li- the school librarian is the most important person in the school. And mm-hmm. and you know, if you have someone like I mean, we had Glenn didn't we? and you know, he really had his finger on the pulse. And I think yeah. actually they're invaluable having a good librarian. Now, I know not all schools have a librarian. So, so, yeah, I just wondered whether that was commonplace or... David, do you have a librarian? Do you mind me We asking? do. We have a wonderful librarian. And I think one of the things that struck me about my school when I first went into it, uh, which actually was after I got the job because I had a virtual interview, uh, so I didn't see the school before I, before I joined, um, was just how um, beautiful the library is and how much of a space it is, at, uh, I'd say, at the heart of the school. Uh, and I really do think that has an impact on whether children want to go there and, and they want to be there. And obviously the person, the librarian, you know, themselves, they're really sort of important because they they recommend, they guide, they listen to children. You know, they're, they're really there just to sort of um, infuse every child with a sort of love of books. And yeah, we do World Book Day stuff and you know, actually something I was going to sort of made me think of when he talked about New Zealand and reading and, and, and it reminded me that the kids lit quiz was something we did at Notting Hill. Yes. And it's, it's actually a New Zealand based um, quiz. And I think, I think you guys have done some, some quizzing with them, haven't you, Thomas? We have. And that was something that um, I was really keen to be part of when I moved home. Um, and I think a great way to to celebrate literacy and celebrate reading um, and for children to see how much fun they can have in, a, in that kind of setting. And so, yeah, I've made sure that each year that I've been here, we've had, you know, as many teams as we can um, in the regional heats and the children come away buzzing. And so for them to come back to school and share, you know, how they've done, um, what they learned, what the questions were, um, and then that just sort of sets the ball rolling for the following year and the children are aspiring to be in that team and um, and so on. So, yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic um, competition. And as you said, so it started by a New Zealander, goes all around the world. Um, there's regional heats in each um, town and then you go through to the, the, the national final. And I don't know if they still do an international, but it is, yeah, as you said, a fantastic um, competition. So I think that um, I think it's actually been on hold for the last three years because of COVID, but we're really hoping it comes back again because I'd love to take our students along if it becomes an international competition. I think it's just been happening in Australia and New Zealand for the last few years, what with the kind of closed borders and things. But now things are open up, you know, hopefully it'll it'll come back. And for those who don't know, definitely check out the Kids Lit Quiz. They've got so many great sort of questions on their site as well. And when it it was around the world, it operated in many countries like, you know, it was in Singapore, it was in Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, 
Hong Kong. I can't remember everywhere, but um, really South Africa, really great series of, of things going on there. And again, it, it, it sort of started in New Zealand. And I, I don't know if this is, Thomas, what you think, but I feel there's a lot of great pedagogy going on in New Zealand or originating in New Zealand uh, that I keep coming across. I don't know if that's your sense there as well, but there seems to be a, a sort of generation of some good stuff there. Do you see a lot of that come your way at all? Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing that with our literacy. So as, as I mentioned, so Liz Kane, um, a really experienced educator who saw a gap in the market and has sort of revolutionised um, the teaching of, of literacy over the last few years. So many schools are buying into her um, approach. Sadly, she's not funded by the ministry. Um, and I think that is her big push is to sort of for the Ministry of Education in New Zealand to see the need um, and to see the gaps. Um, so uh, over the last sort of 10 years, we've been falling behind nationally in our um, numeracy and literacy. Tom, obviously, you know, you've been teaching in multiple settings in, in multiple countries. And we were, I suppose, hoping to, to get the big differences between what's going on in, in New Zealand right now and, and what was happening in the UK when you were here just a couple of years ago. Yeah, so I, I feel that uh, in, in New Zealand, there's a big emphasis on overarching ideas. There's um, a lot of opportunities to work across the curriculum as well. Um, that would be in a, in a traditional state school setting. Um, in, in our independent school, we, we work more on individual um, subjects. And so um, we try to do that cross-curricular work if we can. Um, I also feel like the New Zealand curriculum is quite flexible. Um, in the UK, I found that the curriculum um, – particularly at our school in London, was quite streamlined, easy to follow and implement. Um, I also found that there was an emphasis on knowledge, which some people might feel that that was not the right thing or not as important as it maybe was 20 years ago. But I still feel that children need to know things. Um, there's certain elements of, of history that, you know, they they should have a, an understanding of. Um there's some things that we teach in, in New Zealand that, you know, each year you'll be you'll be having the same conversations and the children will say, oh, when did that happen or, or what date was that? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's no right or wrong um, way of doing things. I, I, did, I did really enjoy my time in the UK and just I think sometimes here there's three or four different um, – providers or three or four different ways of thinking whereas actually you just need one and and if it works stick with it don't don't get caught up in, in trying to do something new if if what you're doing is is working yeah there's a lot of research isn't there about uh, embedding things taking taking a good sort of five years and obviously we know with with turnover particularly at that senior level you tend to have um you know the the desire for change for for change's sake often. Um, when you know when you're saying about uh, working across the subjects, is is there more of like an IB approach to things um, that you know cross cross curricular project based working uh, as opposed to? I know over here we had common entrance, but um, yeah, just a, a set syllabus. 
Yeah, so we, we don't follow the IB. Um, but when we're having team meetings, for example, we might try and incorporate what we're looking at in science and in social science um, and how can we um, bring that across into literacy and, and possibly even numeracy as well. So um, there are there are opportunity, opportunities to do that. And I think that sometimes if, if children can see that it's, that it does link, I think it's great. I think also doing it for the sake of doing it is sometimes not helpful. Um, so yeah, just, just keeping a balance on that and making sure that we are still getting that explicit teaching of the foundation subjects, um, rather than just getting caught up and doing a whole week of, you know, research or, or something you still need. I think sometimes in New Zealand, I feel like those things can be lost a little bit. Um, those those foundations um because we get too caught up in the big idea so yeah just having that keeping that balance just just i'm, I'm very aware i'm hogging you at the moment but one more thing based on what you were just saying there um you, you said knowledge being more important in the uk perhaps than it is in new zealand teaching of fact mm-hmm. um again I'm, i know i'm banging the daniel willingham drum but he he makes a really clear-cut argument for the, the fact that you can't really be that creative unless you've got a solid foundation in in terms of factual knowledge um and and so you know it's it's interesting you know if, if things in new zealand are going maybe towards skills or maybe they've been uh, skills heavy for a while um because i would say what i'm seeing here it's it's almost going the other way yeah yeah i i think so and i think it's just about getting the right balance so uh, this year, we're implementing uh, nationally a new curriculum around Aotearoa uh, New Zealand history, um, and it's something that has needed to happen for a number of years. Um, and so to, to be able to celebrate our, our national history, I think is going to be a great way to implement that knowledge-based approach. Um, so that's something that we're really looking forward to, and that's independent and state schools are, are rolling that out. And that's really interesting because when you mentioned there being some things that you know every children need every child needs to know every every year that needs to be taught again it really did make me think of different contexts and we're talking about uk and new zealand um obviously there are things in a uk context that you know ross as a history teacher you might think for example every child needs to be taught about the windrush generation so important in the uk context um Maybe it made me think, I don't know a lot about it, but the treaty uh, in, in New Zealand um, and the, uh, you know, the various different sort of aspects of, of the culture there seem to be something that perhaps, as you said, is, is really important. Is that kind of like um, something you see as coming more into play with this new curriculum coming in? Definitely. And I think the great thing that we've found in our sort of short journey looking at this has been, uh, the value of a local curriculum, and so studying the the history of our local tribes um, and our local history rather than being nationwide because it is so different. And so recently we've been on a journey to engage with a, a, a local marae, um, and so that is um, a, a marae is like a meeting house. Um, and so all of the history and the, and the Maori culture that goes with that marae. And we've got some amazing – so uh, Maori people are very connected with their their place. And so we've got some amazing 
sort of natural features in New Zealand and our in our rivers and our mountains. Um, and so learning the, the history of those and um, so yeah, it, I think that is that's been a great sort of vehicle. The the national curriculum or the national hist- histories curriculum has been a great vehicle for having these conversations and and for myself as non Māori is to learn more about the culture. Uh, as you said, David, yourself with the Windrush generation is is to learn more about those stories and, and hear from the people um, and then ultimately to empower and help our, our young people to to be better citizens really. The 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 principles that you've you've got in your New Zealand education, I've heard a little bit about them having spoken to a couple of teachers from New Zealand, but am I right in understanding that they're drawn from the Maori culture in certainly in the in the state sector, does that influence you in the independent sector as well? Definitely. We we at the moment we have um out of two hundred and sixty last year 230 students so uh, roughly 25 of those students identified as Māori um, and so our, our big focus um, in terms of looking at the Treaty of Waitangi our founding document is there, there's three um, three principles the three P's so partnership protection and participation um, and so about ensuring that we we do that um, in all in all aspects of of school life and, and ensuring that all students feel valued and um, celebrated. I think that's so so interesting listening to that because again, as a history teacher, David, David's mentioned, um, I'm I'm immediately thinking about things like when you've mentioned the Windrush generation. You know, everyone's heard that. Well, most of us have heard of the Wind Windrush, but how many people have heard of the Empire Citizens Act? And you know that that's really why the Windrush generation moved to the UK and and actually they you know they they have equal status and uh it was shown fairly recently that our our current government almost <laughs> had forgotten about that so so these things you know if they're not if they're not being taught and clearly they're massively important bits of legislation um you know you mentioned you know that the the treaty being a founding document of, of New Zealand and and it's I suppose a fairly recent thing that that um, things are being taught and and tied into the curriculum. Um, I I'd like to see a lot more of that here. I, th- I think you're right, Ross. And I I think um, you know not to take us too much off track, but I I do feel when I hear about the New Zealand principles that Thomas you're talking about, I feel maybe there's something lacking in our educational principles. We don't seem to have that core at the heart of what we do that drives everything. And I also would love to see more of delving into our history, both recent and, and, and ancient to understand ourselves a little bit more because you know, as you said, if we don't teach these things in school, they don't exist in society and there's not an understanding of, of, of who we are and who we've become over the years that, that really feels um, maybe I, I think lacking in in UK education at the moment. But yeah, that's I'm really sure. interesting to hear. I think it's something that I was um, quite excited to look, or learn about, and um, reconnect with when I got home. Um, being away for five years, I felt like my my knowledge and my skills, particularly with the Maori language, dropped off um, because I just wasn't exposed to it. Um, and I, you know, there were opportunities in in the UK to to try and teach a little bit of um, the culture, and you know, 
I think things like sport is a great vehicle for that because the children in the UK would see, you know, the haka with the, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team and say, oh, you know, can you do it? Can you teach us? And so that was a great opportunity to, to share that culture that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, but, yeah, since, since I've got home, it's, it, there's been a really big push um, to do more in that space. And so it's been exciting to be, you know, attending some um, PD and various sort of meetings um, and seeing where we can take it. I suppose the the difficulty is, you know, if it's a government driving that, how do you how do you sort of ensure that it's it's not for political gain? You know, I, I know um, I, I'm talking about just curriculum change in general, I suppose, um, but um, you know, it's it's probably a, a tightrope that needs to be tread fairly carefully. Yeah, I think that everybody is aware of the the importance regardless of who's in um who's in government so whoever we've got an election coming up this year whoever um is elected i think this will continue because everybody in education has seen the importance and the benefit and the need really because it just it, we've got so much good so much you know even though we're a fairly young country with there's so many amazing things that have happened and, and go on here so um, we still need to, you know, be making sure that we celebrate that. It's um, it's definitely a feature of of conversations uh, I feel across the world about education is the extent to which there is that continuity. Uh, it's great to hear that the New Zealand government would continue the same based on the same principles, irrespective of who's in power. I feel that perhaps. You know, to a certain extent, the UK has that. And to a certain extent, we do have a bit of ping-ponging between things. I was recently in uh, Malaysia, visiting Malaysia over Christmas, and uh, talking to a few people there. There was a general feeling um, from the people I was talking to that the education just kind of moved with wherever the politics moved. So as soon as the new government was elected, they would institute changes that undid what the previous government had done. Um, and you do feel like as a teacher, you might be sort of in the middle of that, those changes being kind of tugged one way and then the other. And it's definitely not something you want to feel, uh, particularly if that re- requires massive change every time. So it sounds like there's quite a fair bit of consistency there and maybe has been for a while, even though, even though your own setting, you've got a lot of change happening with girls coming in and you, it sounds like you've got a new curriculum coming in as well. So there is a lot of change happening. Um, but hopefully that will continue in a, in a consistent way. Yeah, there, there, there has been a little bit of change around um, assessment. Um, so I think it was back in 2010, possibly up to 2014, um, we had a new government come in and we had something called National Standards, um, which was where we ranked or uh, – assessed our students um, in reading and writing and they were given a grade nationally um, which the government felt wasn't appropriate for that year group for, for, for you know the primary setting um, and so that's been something that has changed between governments and there was a lot of conjecture around that in, in, in schools because teachers felt that it wasn't right uh, that we were labelling children six, seven years old has been below in reading or, or below in maths. Um, and 
teachers felt that there wasn't enough research and time spent creating um, the sort of the, the guidelines and the, the marking rubrics and assessment rubrics and all of those kind of things to sort of to get those scores. Yeah, yes, there is a, a teacher judgment that went into that. Um, and so, but the next, the, the tricky thing was that there wasn't a lot of sort of collaboration amongst schools. So at, at one school, you could be saying, well, this child is at standard and they could go to the school down the road and they were saying, well, no, actually, we think they're below standard. And so that's, that's where it got tricky. Um, there wasn't enough consistency, but we don't have that at the moment. Uh, I don't know if it would come back. Um, but yeah, I just sort of I'd flag that as well. So, what, what age? I mean, that that's really interesting. But what age would you say the the first sort of formal exam is in? I mean, it might be different in the independent sector in New Zealand, but but um, in both in both settings, uh, the first sort of formal assessment uh, doesn't happen until year eleven. Um, so, children are sort of fourteen and fifteen. Um, so. We have year nine, which is the start of most secondary schools, year 10, and then you have what's called NCEA, uh, National Certificate of Educational Achievement, NCA Level 1, which is year 11, uh, Level 2, uh, year 12, and then year 13, which is Level 3, and then that, that sort of geared around um, a certain level of um, achievement allows you to go to university. Okay. But yeah, it is quite compared to, to the UK, um, it is quite different and, and you know, the eleven plus and common entrance is it is a lot older. Yeah, yeah I was just gonna say, so how how do you then is it down to each individual school then in, in terms of monitoring progress? It is, yeah. And and that's where I sort of said at the beginning of the pod around the flexibility in the curriculum. Um there is a lot of schools are sort of left to their own devices really um, until you hit secondary and that's when it becomes a bit more formal sort of NCA um, and those various assessments that take place. But yeah, just sort of making sure that we're sort of academically rigorous, um, but also trying to give enough freedom to the curriculum and, and to teachers to do, um, you know, to share their strengths and their passions. So you want to make sure that when the pupils move on, it's not a bit of a sudden shock when they hit sudden assessment, you know, to get assessments. Um, and obviously your school goes up to, I think, age 13. Is that right? So you're That's right. Yeah, right. You're, how do you sort of set up for this move towards a system which is suddenly going from no formal assessments to being assessed and it being quite important? So we, we do something called the uh, a PAT test, a, a progressive achievement test, um, in a range of different um, different areas. So a, a general sort of reading assessment, which looks at vocab, looks at a close activity, um, synonyms, and we do maths. We do a listening assessment as well, which is about listening comprehension. We do that at the beginning at the, in the end of each year to, to show that progress, which gives, I'd say, probably maybe 60% of New Zealand schools would do that, those assessments, but they're not um, shared anywhere. They're just for internal um, monitoring. 
Um, we also, in year seven and eight, we also do some uh, mid-year and end-of-year exams as well, which not a lot of schools do, but being a, an independent sort of prep school, that's some, something that we, we feel is important to give children that opportunity to study and to um, have to revise and then to be put under you know test conditions and and to be able to share their their thinking um, and all of the feedback that we get um, from parents and from students they say we're so grateful that we did those exams in year eight because when we got to secondary school it wasn't the first time that we sat something like that um, so that's that's something that we feel is is important um, a lot of schools are moving away from those traditional uh, primary schools are moving away from those traditional uh, assessment methods, but we we give the children as many opportunities as we can to sort of revise and and support them in their in their study. And yeah, I think it's so important. It's so important, isn't it, to build that academic resilience? I think before they before they move on, and you know, I guess a prep school in in any setting, you're you're preparing the children, and part of that preparation is is just that, isn't it? So. Um, Moving the conversation on slightly, um, I'm not going to stereotype too much, but you were talking about New Zealand being a relatively young country and, and one with, with great successes in, in lots of areas. And one, I would say one sort of universal success has been New Zealand's sport and, you know, male and female. Um, and obviously the, the New Zealand women's rugby team, I think, won the World Cup just recently. And, uh, you know, it's... New Zealand has almost become an international brand for sporting success. And I know you, you mentioned that going from teaching in London back to New Zealand, one of the one of the first things you noticed was the the weighting, the emphasis put on sport. Um, I, I was just going to ask, you know, do you think that do you think that that's something that maybe other countries could be doing more of? You know, in, in terms of education lower down, um, and and do you think any of any of that is transferable to other parts of other elements of education. Yeah, so I at school currently uh, sport is compulsory. Um, so the children do sport uh, two days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and I think it's just a great way to build resilience, um, to learn how to to lose, um, to learn how to win and be humble, um, to learn how to play as a team. Um, and it's I just love it's a great way for me to to interact with different students um, who I don't ordinarily teach. Um, so taking a cricket team or a football team, for example, and being able to celebrate students who may not be super academic or they might not have a passion for performing arts, and so that is their um, area to shine. And so a lot of the school is sort of geared around. Um, co-curricular and so for the children to be able to to achieve that success I think is is so important um I feel like we don't overdo it in terms of you know I know that for example in, in England with the football academies and children that's all they do you know they're in the national academy from age seven or age eight and they're training five or six days a week I don't think we do that um I think we celebrate you know, playing a range of sports and learning new skills rather than just focusing on sports specific. So, for example, in 
PE or how old it is, we would, would call it, um, which means health. Um, we focus on the skills of of sports rather than in in the UK would do say uh, a football term, a, a rugby term, and a rounders or cricket term. So f- football and netball, um, rugby um, and hockey, and then and then cricket or rounders. Um, so there's more opportunities to just learn invasion games, um, to learn about physical fitness, to learn about you know your health, which I'm, which I know all of these things happen in the UK as well. Um, but yeah, we're not sort of hot housing on one sport too early. Um, we've sort of in New Zealand we've pulled back a lot on representative um, teams as well at, at, at young ages. Um, it's not till they get to sort of 13 and 14 where they start to you know, represent their region or, or so, and so on. So, yeah, I think I think sport in New Zealand, as you said, is a big part of our culture um, and a huge part of education as well and a really important part. The amount of children now who are sort of can be stuck behind a screen for long periods of time and, and not be able to get those endorphins and, you know, have um, have some fun and get some fresh air, I think. And, yeah, and I is that really absolutely? And I, uh, is that something that is is commonplace in the state system as well, in terms of sport being pretty fundamental? It's it is a lot a little bit different in the state sector in that um, not many schools have designated PE teachers. Um, a lot of the sport is done through clubs. So we a lot of our sport at our school is done. All of our sport is done through the school, and so all of our teachers are required to, to coach or manage a team, um, whereas at, at state schools you rely on parents to pick up the slack in after school or, or during the weekend. So it is a big commitment on our staff um, and that they're giving up a lot of their time after school when they could be planning and marking um, and then, you know, time away from, from families in the weekend. But, you know, we are remunerated for it. Um, but it is it is a commitment and and I think an important part of the school as well that you know when you um, join a school like like that you you're aware of the additional requirement in terms of time um, and so yeah everybody's fully um, fully informed and aware that you know what it, what it means to, to teach it at that sort of school. It's certainly certainly something that that runs through independent schools here, more so outside of London. But that sort of daily, actually daily sporting commitment, and and the fact that teachers are also coaches. Um, but I think picking up on the differences, it sounds as though we might be perhaps, for want of a better word, hot housing our pupils a bit more, and and certainly earlier uh, in terms of certain sports. Whereas you seem to be focusing more on actually just sport and, and health in general um and and obviously the results you know not going to say that one country is better than another in terms of sport but i'd say your reputation's pretty solid other other big wins do you do you think that there's something that you're doing at the moment that you think is like an obvious area of of um learning that we, that we could be adopting elsewhere yeah I, I i think that our structured literacy is a big win for us i feel that we <sighs> And it's, I think it's quite rare to get buy-in from all staff when you're implementing new professional development. And I think, so in our initial conversations that we've had with um, various facilitators and 
to to see the the nodding heads around a staff room, you know, board table um, was quite powerful. Um, quite often, you can get some folded arms, and you know, you know that it's sort of gone in one ear and out the other. But to sort of sit there and and hear everybody say, "Yes, this is important," and it's not just uh, they're just reinventing the wheel, you know. Um, regurgitating what's happened sort of 15 or 20 years ago and and seeing the decline in um in students with their literacy um and and having something tangible that is easy to follow i think is has been great for us um so that's probably been a big win for us and or and also just for the students as well to sort of have a a pattern and a, um, a process to follow for parents as well, we've had so much great feedback around our implementation of structured literacy um, because they can see the value and they can see the improvement. Um, and also great for you know boards of governors and boards of trustees because they can see the results um, at, at board level. So that's something that I've sort of grappled with when working on Thinking, um, thinking routines and thinking critically—it's not all not always reflected in in results, um, exams, for example. But something like structured literacy—it it really is. Um, you can see those those shifts and in, in achievement. So that's been a big win for us. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can you can pull out obviously results, and it's great to hear there are there's an impact on the students. But you can also get that from the anecdotal evidence of what teachers say yeah. and how they find it. And you say there's nodding head it, heads, you know, in, in meetings. And um, actually, uh, maybe it's a good time to mention, but uh, in March 2021, I, I visited your school as I was over in New Zealand. And, and I got to talk to a few of the teachers and leaders there. And it was great hearing them. I think you were probably... In the early stages of your work with these two projects but it was really interesting to hear um teachers talk about the way in which both these projects were influencing the children and that in itself is evidence of impact um so as you said it, it, it some things you can see tangibly but other things you can you get through people saying this is really working for me i'm really seeing it in the classroom and that that's wonderful to hear and see yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's just sort of it just builds that momentum. And so sometimes I, I feel like with, with PD you can do something while it's happening. Um, you know, we're doing the, the regular meetings and we're doing the um the working groups and then once you sort of move away from that PD, sometimes it can die off. But this is something that I know is going to continue however long we work with a, a provider. Um because staff have that the confidence i guess sometimes with pd it's it's about their teachers in in our own knowledge um do we really buy into it and so once you've got that buy-in you know that whoever's leading that pd or or if the pd is no longer you're, you're no longer involved in um you're still going to get that flow on effect definitely yeah can i um can i ask as well um what are what are some of the things that have impacted you and influenced your journey as a as a teacher and a leader? Um, 
Yeah, so I think for me it's it's all about my colleagues, um, so the people I've worked with, um, both of yourselves, and picked up little bits from everybody that I've tried to work with. Um, and I think uh, more so in the UK, there was a, an amazing colleague who I worked with, um, Maisie McCullough. I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning, but we were parallel teachers in year three for a number of years. And just her work ethic and her willingness to try new things. So, for example, she had a, a great idea at the beginning of the year. She said, I want to get some more rich literature into our English um, English English lessons. And so she said, let's do a, a novel study on Wind in the Willows. And I thought, gosh, that's quite ambitious, you know, for year threes. And and it was great. And we and we unpacked the Wind in the Willows for for these sort of eight and nine year olds. And and at the end of the year, Maisie sort of reflected on it. And she said, Do you know what? I think that was it was too hard. It was too high level. But for her to sort of say, to give something new a go and to see that she was prepared to not fail, but potentially for it not to go perfectly um, was really powerful. I think sometimes as teachers, we can sort of get a little bit set in our ways. And if something works okay for, 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 you know, one term or one year, we think, oh, we'll just roll that out again. But for her to constantly be looking to engage and try new things, um, I really loved. I think also, you know, her dedication as well, the fact that she'd been teaching us a year group for three or four years, but she was still in, you know, doing long hours during the week and, you know, in on the, in on the weekends prepping and um, planning new lessons. And, and I think just working alongside somebody like that, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. I think also uh, in London, you know, we, as you said, we had the drive team, the thinking drive team, that something that I'd never been a part of before. And I went in there feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And the way that people, there was never a culture of, it never felt like a real hierarchy. So it wasn't like I'm this person at the top and you're going to sort of, you know, follow what I, what I tell you. It was about let's work alongside each other knowing that we've all got different strengths that we brought to the table. Um, that I think that's really powerful. I think sometimes in, in education it can be sort of, um, yeah, quite hierarchical um, and feeling like you're just sort of a follower rather than being brought alongside for the journey and, and being on, the, on a similar level. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for my time, my time in the UK and just trying to pick up, be a sponge really and, and pick up as much as I could. I think um, you know you're, you're touching upon some some of the greats there, um, Maisie McCullough, and yeah, we um, <coughs> I think we, you know we were so fortunate where we I don't I don't think she'd mind, but like for instance, you know Isabel Maitland, you know absolute juggernaut of a of a teacher, and um, you know James Holmes and pe- people like that. I feel like we we bounced off each other really well, and and we've all now left that school, but but we've we've sort of taken taken so much with us that we still use i don't know about you guys but you use day to day um and uh, yeah i think we were i don't know if we were phenomenally fortunate um i'd like to think you know that that sort of vibe is is replicated across the industry i, I don't know maybe maybe we were just really lucky but um it's interesting that you say that 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 was like a for, formative period for you because it certainly was for me and david i know you're you're passionate about those years um when you 
what you've just said about hierarchy is quite important. I was just going to ask about leadership because you were on the senior management team. We, we worked alongside each other. Um, but then actually in the thinking school drive team, David, you were our boss. So, you know, and, and, and we've sort of worked under and alongside each other. Um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, so Tom, I was wondering as, as a leader now in your new setting, is there, is there anything that, you know, you, you've taken with you and, and then, uh, introduced or, or is there sort of a, a leadership style that is something you've had to adopt in, in your current setting? Um, yeah, basically, any tips on leadership? Yeah, I, I think I'm still learning um, uh, in terms of leadership. I think it can be quite difficult to to make your mark. Um, so, for example, I, I teach probably about seventy percent, which is quite a high high load. And so, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, trying to do my teaching, trying to do my my leadership and management, trying to you know coach sport and you know, be a dad as well. Um, so it is a it is a tricky balance and a, and a juggle. I think for me, it's just about listening. I think that's in, in creating relationships and and knowing that I don't know everything and not trying to bluff anything. Sort of being really transparent and saying, look, I, I don't know enough about this element of structured literacy. I'm going to go to the expert on our staff and and get her to sort of um, get me up to speed. Also, admitting when when perhaps you've got something wrong or if something hasn't worked out the way that you plan, sort of not trying to blindly continue with that, knowing when the right time is to say, yep, it's time to move on. Perhaps that hasn't worked as as I would have hoped. I think also making sure that I get people along for the journey with me. So sharing the why, it, it's, it seems a bit cliche, but I think if people understand why you were doing something, they're more likely to buy into that project and and being around to to answer questions as well. If somebody's really not perhaps bought into what you're what you're doing, having that one to one conversation, saying why is it that you we haven't seen anything from you in, that, in this area, um, and they might just say, look, I'm just I just don't know, it. I'm not that confident. I've got a lot on my plate, and just so sitting down and having those one to ones, I think is something that i try to do i think if uh, aaron was here right now he'd be purring at your kind of what you, all the things you're mentioning these are stuff that we've talked about on the pod already the sunk cost fallacy uh you know the the idea that you te- leaders often keep going with something because they put so much effort into it but to- hearing you talk about knowing when to stop something seems like a really important how to sort of know when to kind of move on and when to shift but also it seems what you're saying is just a lot about talking to teachers, talking to your staff and really ensuring that everyone understands what's going on, why it's happening, being on the same page. And, and that takes a lot of work, but it also is so rewarding, I think. And yeah, it's great to hear you, you talk about that in, in such, um, yeah, in such a passionate way. It's interesting to hear you talk about your uh, teaching allocation, 70%, obviously, you know, you're saying that, that that's quite high. There's a big, big culture here of, of senior leaders having a much more reduced timetable than that. Um, I know, obviously, lots of heads tend not to teach nowadays. And um, I, I was fortunate in that I've worked in a few environments where the head actually has taught. And um, I was just, you know, I, I'm sure 
that actually doing that level of mahi, it, you know, it's going to really pay off. And I'm, I'm sure you'll get some treats from that. And, you know, a bit of leading from the front. You know, I, I know that's something you're passionate about from having worked alongside you. And um, yeah, thanks, Ross. that sounds like you've you've really taken that on. So for those listeners not aware of the, the Maori language, mahi meaning work. So doing the mahi means doing the work and getting the, the rewards or the treats, as, as Ross mentioned there. So, yeah, I think that is something that, that is really important as a leader is that you can sort of give back and and show that you're you're still putting in that work and that you're not just stuck behind a desk answering emails. I think that's that's so powerful that you can, if you're in the class and also getting around wherever possible, getting around into other lessons and for the children to sort of see you in a different light, yeah, not just up in front of everybody at assemblies and things like that. Um, Tom, we obviously we've had the the benefit of your company for for a while, and I'm aware that you probably want to get on with your day. And uh, I was just wondering, we've been talking a lot about pedagogy actually at work, but we've been talking a lot on the pod as well about things we're we're doing, or or books we're reading, or courses that we want to go on. Um, is there, is there something that you're focusing on at the moment, or or hoping to to look at over the the coming term? Yeah, so I think for me, it's trying to find some time for myself in terms of of reading so i've got a couple of books that i that i want to get underway so jim collins good to great i've heard a lot about and excited to read and then also another one called positive intelligence which i don't know if either of you have have come across but i will get the i'll get the author and i think that's something that i'm i'm guilty of so that's uh Shurzad, but it's something that i'm guilty of during term time is is not doing that reading or that professional reading because I think we can get so bogged down in the day-to-day. So, yeah, that's my little, not a resolution, but a little goal for, for 2023. As a new father, I know how difficult it is actually just trying to stay awake to read. And, you know, I've, I've, re- I've reread the same half page so many times. So I would say, uh, you know, au- Audible is, is for me, a, a huge thing. Is that are, are people are people using Audible down New Zealand? Or, yeah, is that is that a thing? Yeah. We've just got the um, we've just got into podcasts in New Zealand actually in the last six months. It's just sort of took a while to come to New Zealand. I'm joking, um, but yeah, audible audible is um, is something that a lot of people get into. Can you tell me? Um, is there anything as well that you'd like us to cover in the podcast? Uh, the rest is education. Is there anything you'd like us to sort of talk about more? Um, give us some uh, tips of what we could look at in the next uh, few months. I've really enjoyed hearing you talk about um, your experiences and I think any opportunity to listen to another educator or another leader and pick up their, you know, their must-dos or their top top tips, I think I'd really enjoy. So anything like that would be great. Well, on that note, it's been fantastic listening to you, Thomas, telling us all about what you've been doing and all the influences on you. And I really appreciate you being on here and giving your time. So thank you. Thanks. It's my, been my pleasure. And I, I think before we sort of started recording, I just said how excited I was and I think how important it is to for us to get together um, as teachers and, and have these sort of staff room conversations, but with independent colleagues that are not involved in the day-to-day of, of, of our school. Because I think you, when you're a little bit removed, you can have uh, a, different, a different level of conversation rather than just get caught up about what duty you're doing or you know what happened with your sports team on Saturday or you know which child is behaving or misbehaving in your lesson so I think that's that's been really great so I'm yeah very pleased to be or grateful to be 
to be invited. Oh, brilliant. Well, th- thanks so much for coming on. And, and what, what you've said was really the whole whole raison d'etre for, for the podcast, that we, we wanted that uh, in, independent, uh, I suppose, reassurance or, or space in which to discuss things. And um, yeah, it'd be great if we could bring you in more often and, and uh, keep, keep our finger on the pulse as to what's going on down in New Zealand. Um, Tom, thanks so much i hope you enjoy the rest of your day i'm sorry we had to get you up early um for those sort of not not in the know um tom's 13 hours ahead of us um so it's been an early early start for him thanks guys great to see you you've been listening to the rest is education i'm david marshall i'm ross porthwick and today i'm thomas primrose stepping in for aaron huber You've been listening to The Rest is Education. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts at The Rest is Education. Or you can email us at therestiseducation at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram or Twitter.